0: Thank you, Rachel and Isabel, for the reading today. Good morning, church, to those in person and online. It's great to be with you today. We are well into the series, and I want to look back a little bit on the series on where we started from, because how we begin the story of our God, of our faith, matters. Because it will determine the problem that Jesus came to solve. How do we understand our mission? How do we understand what Jesus came for? How do we understand the good news? Because it will shape how we view Jesus and what he came to do. So let's go back to the beginning of the series. We talked about this idea of created to flourish that God created humanity to flourish in his temple, which was the garden, in relationship with himself, in our worship, in our work, with mutuality and not dominion. We hear this charge to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and increase in number. How to govern, how to bring flourishing to this world. Now, we know that the fall came just two chapters later, that sin enters the picture, shame enters the picture, but God's mission does not change to bring flourishing to the world, the original good news. So he says the same to Noah in Genesis 9-1. Then God bless Noah and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. God's mission has not changed, and Jesus carries on that mission as he comes to us. Now, we've gone several weeks into Revelation. Um, If you have missed one of those weeks, we encourage you to uh, jump in, watch them online on our YouTube channel, because it will help to make sense of this journey. We've talked about ways to read it, ways not to read it. One of the ways that I'm proposing that we read it is this lamb centered way of looking at it the lamb was slaughtered the lamb was victorious not because of violence but the lamb comes into battle with his own blood last week chapter 4 we talked about the throne and the throne was central for worship for the caesar and yet these people that are struggling under persecution are presented with the throne and who is on the throne it was not caesar It was God. It was not ourself on the throne, not our status. We talked about so many things. What does Hong Kong put on the throne? But God was on the throne. This book is meant to be an encouragement, a comfort, a challenge to be faithful. And that's how we interpret it. Today's chapter, chapter five, is so key in how we understand the rest of what's coming. So I'm excited about it. Let's jump right into Verse 5 1. So we were hearing about this scroll, this important document that has a message to the people. If it was sealed, only the person who was authorized to read it could actually read the scroll. And there's this question, who is worthy to open the scroll? But verse 3, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll. Nobody anywhere could open it. And John weeps. John is so discouraged. He's deeply distressed. If nobody can open it, then the message will be inaccessible, will be not proclaimed. And so, He is weeping and weeping. But then the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll. John is excited about this. All is not lost. The lion, the tribe of Judah, is there. These are terms used to apply to the Messiah, He sees a lion going into battle, devouring its prey. He would reinvigorate the Lion of Judah. The root of Jesse would be reborn. But then John's world gets turned upside down. Remember throughout Revelation, he'll hear something and he'll look and he'll see something else. He hears about the Lion of Judah, but what does he turn and see? I see a lamb. Looking as if it had been slain. See, he hears lion, and I'm sure he's encouraged by this, but he looks and he sees a lamb as if it has been slain. John was expecting a royal military figure, something coming in power, and that is not what he gets. He sees a slain lamb. He must have been confused. He sees a vision of weakness and not strength. This slaughtered lamb is an important image in scripture. It goes all the way back to Exodus and the Pharaoh. The people of God were to put the blood of a lamb over their doorpost. So when the avenger Comes that they will be saved. They will be rescued out of Egypt through the blood of the Lamb. This is a central image for the people of God. And this image of the blood of the Lamb is central to us in the New Testament as well. By portraying Jesus as the slaughtered Lamb, Revelation wants us to see that Jesus is ultimately the one that will save us for God's purposes. This is the means of victory. This is the means of our salvation. We've looked at these images many times over the last two years, and they're relevant for Revelation as well. Many of us, including myself, grew up with this image on the left. We're on earth, there's a judgment, and you go to heaven and hell. But as we've unpacked many sermons, they're online if you want to go there, what we hear, the pairing we hear in Scripture is heaven and earth, heaven and earth, heaven and earth. This idea that there has been a rupture between heaven and earth at the fall, and yet God's plan is to bring them back together. It's what Jesus prays for in the Lord's Prayer. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we see these same images coming up in Revelation. See, with the image on the left, the the goal is to rescue people out of the earth to heaven. There's no need to bring flourishing to the whole world because it's going to end Anyway, it's more of an escape plan, and yet the Bible does not talk about an escape plan. It talks about a discipleship plan. The Lamb's sacrifice is not merely um, wiping away the sin for a few people here and there. N.T. Wright says it this way, the victory won by the Lamb is God's lion-like victory over all the forces of corruption and death, over everything that would destroy and obliterate God's good, powerful, and lovely creation. And he does this through the Lamb. It's a complete system renewal as we are moving towards Revelation 21.5. Behold, I am making all things new, not making new things, making all things new. That means everything here being made new, completely being restored and redeemed. Sometimes we reduce what Jesus has done as some sort of moralistic sort of covering of some of the bad things we might do here and there, but it's deep down to our core us as humanity, and this world transformation. What Jesus has done is so much bigger than sometimes we can imagine. And the slaughtered lamb is at the center. The slaughtered lamb makes that possible. There's a second aspect of the lamb that John wants us to get. The slaughtered lamb shows us how God accomplishes his purposes in the world. It's the means of his transformation, offering himself, going to the cross, this cruciform way of bringing redemption. God achieves victory, his purposes, through apparent weakness and defeat as a sacrificial victim. See, when God establishes his kingdom, he does not do it the way Caesar did, with might, by power, going in and conquering and destroying and wiping out. He accomplishes his victory through offering himself because of his deep love for all of humanity, all of creation. He doesn't do it the way Babylon did. He doesn't do it the way we see countries doing it today. He doesn't do it the way we might want to establish our own empires, rather through sacrifice. So the followers of the lamb are to behave like the lamb, not like Caesar, like new creation, new Jerusalem, not like Babylon or the beast. We'll get to the beast in future sermons. I've left them for Pastor Brenda to talk about. (laughs) If we want to follow the lamb, we should expect our lives to look a bit like the lamb of giving of ourselves because of our love for others. That can be difficult to do. See, the way of old creation says, by might, by power, I will accomplish. I will judge others. I will put others down. But we see the opposite with the lamb. We see the opposite with what Jesus is doing. He says, love your enemies. What is our part in this? We're going to step over into chapter 7 for a bit. Again, he hears a number okay? He hears a number, 144,000, of all the tribes of Judah, and they are sealed, right? There's this idea of being sealed. It's sealed as a sign of ownership, and I've received some questions. Um, The QR code there is if you have questions, and I try to get to them as we are going through the service. What does this sealed mean? The sealed means a sign of ownership, and so um, I want to talk about how this relates to Revelation, we were talking about this verse in our Holy Lands um, study group about the Shema, this really key, important theological truth that we see in Deuteronomy. Here, O Israel, the Lord God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. And Some of the people of God take this literally where they have bound him, you can see on the forehead there, and bound on the hand. If you're quite observant on the right picture there, you can see somebody with a pink polo that maybe looks out of place. That's me. But you see this binding, this idea of ownership in scripture to the forehead and to the hands. This is why on Ash Wednesday, we mark a cross on the forehead. It's a sign of God's ownership. It's a sign of identity. Now, how does this relate to Revelation? Because we see in Revelation 13, which is several chapters ahead, that there is this mark, this mark of 666 on their hands and on their foreheads. And I grew up with this idea that's going to be a barcode, right? It's going to be a computer chip. And every time there's a new technology, this must be what it is. That's getting way ahead of the point of this. It's really a mark of ownership. What owns you? What is on your throne? Is it Babylon? Or is it God? Is it the ways of old creation? Or is it the ways of new creation? What owns you? What do you identify with? Is it the Shema? The Lord your God is one. See, this mark is really the anti-Shema. It's the anti-proclamation about loving God with all of who we are. All right, so I wanted to take a little sidestep away from there as we get back into the 144,000. This is an army, not a literal number of people. It's the martyrs, those who have been faithful followers of God. So John hears 144,000, and then what does he see? He sees and he looks, and he sees a great multitude that no one could count before the Lamb. So he hears this number, and then he sees a number that cannot be counted From every tribe, every nation, every language, Jews and Gentiles, every corner of the globe. It's God's original fulfillment of the promise he made to Abraham that they would be a blessing to all nations. And now we see all nations coming as this great multitude with the lamb at the center. And who are these people? We go back to Revelation 7, and that's the question, who are they? And he says, these are those that came out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. They've come out of this time. They are washing them their robes. They're active in their following of God. But it's not their blood that they're washing it in. It's the one who brings them redemption and salvation, the blood of the Lamb. So this great tribulation, or depending on your translation, it might say the great ordeal, Um, what is this? Paul Spillsbury, who is one of the resources I've been reading as we've been going through this, says this. In Revelation, it refers to the period from the opening of the first seal to the arrival of the triumphant Christ In other words, it refers to the time of Christ's ascension, where Christ went back up to heaven as the slaughtered lamb worthy to open the scroll, to his return as the rider on the white horse. It is the age that we presently live in. So visually, this time here we see with Christ ascending, and then till Christ comes back, the slaughtered lamb, and the rider on the horse. We are in the end times. We are in the great tribulation. Now, I was not taught this as I was growing up. I was taught about this this concept called the rapture. And so that question has emerged, so I want to take a little moment to talk about the rapture itself. This idea that God would snatch away the church so they wouldn't have to suffer for a given amount of time, depending on your view. But we see in Revelation, actually, we don't get sort of rescued out of the suffering. The people of God are suffering itself. Michael Gorman says it this way, Revelation is not about rapture out of this world, but about faithful discipleship in this world. The word rapture is not even in Revelation. So where does it come from? It comes from 1 Thessalonians where we get this image, the Lord himself, with the cry of a command, with the archangel's call, with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. So we get this image of Christ returning. We get this idea of the resurrection. When Christ returns, we'll be resurrected. And then this idea of going into air. So what people had done really in this last 150 years, they've taken this and they've superimposed it onto Revelation. Oh, this is what's going to happen. We're going to be raptured out. We're going to be taken away and we're not going to go through the suffering. The problem with that is it misses the the context of this passage. It misses the actual culture of what this was. See, Paul here is writing about when kings would return from battle, when they would come towards the city, the city officials and the people would go out and rush and greet them outside of the city, not to then leave the city, but to welcome them into the city. And that image is not ascending into heaven. It's a returning to earth, which is what we've been talking about. So this Christ returning, we are greeting him and welcoming him to earth as heaven overlaps with earth. So that's where that concept comes from. And um, it's important that we understand it in a way that would have made sense then and now. Scott McKnight says it this way Similarly, the trumpet will sound and we will depart to greet our royal king, not so that we might be raptured to heaven, but so that we can welcome and celebrate the return of the royal king to earth, heaven coming down to earth. See, God is not telling the people in Revelation that they are going to miss out on the struggle. It's an encouragement for them in the midst of the struggle that. Things actually will be difficult, but they will not be alone. They will not be abandoned. The slaughtered lamb is with them, and victory will be his, even when it's difficult to see in the midst of the moment. And we, our followers of the lamb, get to bear witness to that lamb. Michael Gorman says it this way, Revelation is often misread as a demonstration of precisely this kind of coercive divine power in human history, especially in interpreting the vision of judgment. Only when chapters 4 and 5 are read as Revelation's hermeneutical key or, or way to understand reality, divinity, history, and ethics will we be able to place the vision of judgment in proper perspective. What he's saying there is chapters 4 and 5 are so key for us to understand what is coming in this letter as we begin to enter into the judgments from chapter 6 to 16. So Revelation is not telling us we're going to be raptured. It's actually a call to faithfulness, to be hopeful, to be hopeful. So how, how does this make sense for us today? What can we sort of walk away with um, First, in just a very practical sense, you know, I was debating whether to call this revelation for today, or how does the lamb shape how we live? Does the lamb shape how we live? First, it's victory through love and sacrifice. Jesus will be triumphant through sacrifice, His mission to bring flourishing has not changed. Jesus doesn't go to the cross one moment to achieve victory this way and then pick up a sword to wipe out his enemies the next. He goes into battle covered in his own blood. How do we love like Jesus? How do we love those who are not easy to love? How do we lay down rights What will it look like when heaven is completely overlapped with earth? When there will be no more evil? What in our lives, what in who we are, will have to cease to function in that way, down to our very core? What will God restore us from? And how can we begin to live that way now? Point number two, it's more important to be faithful than effective. The victory is Jesus's. Revelation is a call to be faithful, a call to walk in the ways of the Lamb. That's what it's a call to. It's not for the followers to achieve the victory It's a call for them to be faithful to the Lamb who has achieved the victory. Point number three, and this is where I want to go back to how we began this series, how I began this sermon, that we can join in the flourishing that we see in the world, that we can resist things that lead us away from flourishing. See, the church is not the entirety of the kingdom. Our workplaces, our schools, our hospitals— our governments can bring flourishing into the world, or they can lead us away from flourishing. We see the call to the exiles in Jeremiah 29.7 says this, Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. See, Revelation doesn't just criticize Babylon. It criticizes the church when it acts in destructive ways like Babylon. The ways of Babylon, old creation, leading by might, leading in selfishness, versus the dynamics of new creation. Old creation, new creation. Babylon, new Jerusalem. These are realities that we can help to live into Old creation, evil, injustice, greed, toxic workplaces, business practices that harm the environment, sin and shame, new creation, fair wages, universal health coverage, quality schools. What are the things that lead to flourishing in our world, in our schools, in our government, in our workplaces? Wherever we see flourishing, we can join into it. We can be a part of the flourishing Some of you may see this green ribbon. Um, October 10th is World Mental Health Day. And we see a lot of flourishing when people get help for their mental health, whether that's through counseling, therapy, medication. It's an important avenue for this. We want to lift that up to reduce stigma for people to get help, needed help that can help in their flourishing. We want to encourage that to help people to grow into it. Just like we would encourage somebody to go to the hospital to get chemo if they need chemo, to get a bone mended if it has been broken. We can have an impact today. We can make a difference today. As we center the lamb, as we center on what he has done, as we remember the lamb achieved victory through his own death, as we remember that we are followers of the lamb, to live like the lamb. This is what John wants us to understand from this chapter today. Let's pray. God, I thank you um, for just your word to us, God, through this book. Sometimes we, we might want a lion that, that destroys those around us, God. Uh, but that's not how you come into our lives, God. You come in walking with us, giving yourself for us, God. Going to the cross on our behalf. And we get to be witnesses to who you are. We get to carry the crosses that you have given each one of us. We get to point to you, God. God, so fill us with courage, with hope today as we bring all of who we are to you. In your name we pray, amen.